Section 1 of The Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. The Public Opinion Bill, Part 1. The Public Opinion Bill. Footnote. Address before the Central Labor Union of Boston, September 15, 1907. The public opinion bill which had been proposed was as follows. Public opinion bill as reported to the House of Representatives of Massachusetts at the last session of the legislature. An act to authorize the submission to voters on official ballots at state elections of questions of public policy. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives in general court assembled and by the authority of the same as follows. Section 1. On a request signed by 1,000 voters asking for the submission of any question for an expression of opinion and stating the substance thereof, the Secretary of the Commonwealth shall transmit such request to the State Ballot Law Commission, who shall determine if such question is one of public policy, and if they so determine, shall draft it in such simple, unequivocal, and adequate form as they may deem best suited to secure a fair expression of opinion. Thereupon the Secretary shall prepare and furnish suitable forms, each to contain spaces for not more than 100 signatures, and if such forms shall be signed by 5,000 voters, he shall, upon the fulfillment of the requirements of this Act, place such question on the official ballot to be used at the next state election. Forms shall bear the date on which they are issued, and no applications made on forms issued more than 12 months before the election concerned shall be received. Section 2. Signers of requests for the issuance of forms and signers of applications shall append to their signatures their residence with street and number, if any, and shall be certified as registered voters by the proper registrars of voters. One of the signers to each paper shall make oath of the genuineness of the signatures thereto, and a notary public, justice of the peace, or other magistrate, when taking such oath, shall satisfy himself that the person to whom the oath is administered is the person signing such paper, and shall so state in his attestation of such oath. All provisions of law relating to nomination papers shall apply to such requests and applications as far as may be consistent. Section 3. Applications shall be filed with the Secretary 60 days before the election at which the questions are to be submitted. Not more than four questions under this Act shall be placed upon the ballot at one election, and they shall be submitted in the order in which the applications are filed. No question negatived and no question substantially the same shall be submitted again in less than three years. End of footnote. Mr. President and gentlemen, I am much indebted to you for your kindness in asking me to address you upon a public question which seems to me to be of the gravest importance. You are the representatives of the great labor organizations of Boston. But let me say at the outset that the measure which I am about to discuss is in no sense what is usually called a labor measure any more than it is a party measure. It is one which affects the entire community, every man and woman alike, without regard to their occupation or position, for it involves a change not in our laws but in the fundamental principles of our government. What I am about to say to you was prepared some months ago, before I left Washington, because I thought that I might desire to discuss this question after I had come home, and I wished to speak whenever the opportunity occurred with care and deliberation. 
This argument, which is not designed for a special audience, but for any audience of any kind that might care to listen to it, because it concerns equally all citizens of Massachusetts. I therefore do not address you merely in your capacity as representatives of our great labor organizations, but in your larger capacity as American citizens, interested above all in the welfare of the community and in the safety and permanence of the Republic. There was reported to the legislature during its last session an act known as the Public Opinion Bill. It was brought up in the House and after a full and very able debate was defeated by a decisive majority. But although this bill and its purposes were well understood in the legislature, I do not think that the gravity of the measure and its far-reaching effect were fully appreciated by the people generally. As a matter of fact, no more fundamental and far-reaching measure has been presented to the legislature of Massachusetts within my recollection. It was not a mere change in legal practice, nor an alteration of long-established laws, nor even a constitutional change which was proposed. The bill involved all these and much more, for if carried out logically to its full extent, it would mean nothing less than a complete revolution in the fabric of our government and in the fundamental principles upon which that government rests. This may seem an extreme statement, but I think it is susceptible of absolute demonstration because this bill, if it should become law, would undermine and ultimately break down the representative principle in our political and governmental system. To make my meaning perfectly clear, it will be necessary to consider, briefly and historically, the principles upon which all government rests and the instruments by which it is carried on. Our division of the departments of government into executive, legislative, and judicial, with which we are entirely familiar, and which the Constitution of the United States made coordinate and independent, is not a new classification, but represents in whole or in part the recognized and essential foundations of all modern governments. The first method of government devised by man took the very natural form of a leader or chief. The recognition of a leader, indeed, may almost be described as a natural instinct, for leaders are common among herds of wild animals. The organization of government, therefore, by the recognition of a chief whose direction and command have greater or less authority, is found even among the most primitive races of man, except perhaps among a very few tribes in the lowest stages of development, who live in a condition of practical anarchy. The leader or chief of the savage tribe is the executive. He often, in the earliest times, combined with the executive power, the religious function of high priest, and the judicial function of deciding disputes among his followers. When we come to the great empires of which we have the earliest records, we find the executive fully developed, sacred in his person and vested with authority which in effect made the government a despotism. All despotisms consist in the absorption of power by the executive, whether that executive is a single autocrat, as is usual, or a narrow oligarchy like the Council of Ten at Venice. The despot may or may not have ceased to exercise the judicial function personally, but if he has created judges, they exercise their powers only in his name. As for laws, he makes them all himself, and you can read today the laws of Babylon promulgated 6,000 years ago and bearing the name of the king who made the code. In the supposed power of the king to cure disease by his touch, which was exercised in England by Queen Anne only 200 years ago, as well as in the theory of the divine right of kings and in the right of the subject to appeal to the king for redress, which have endured to our own times, you may witness the survival of the doctrines of the most ancient governments known. 
when all functions, religious, judicial, and legislative, were represented by the executive. Coming down from the most ancient times, we find in Greece and Rome a theory of government not known, so far as we are aware, to the more ancient Eastern monarchies. The governments of Greece, as a rule, and the government of Rome were founded on the principle that freeborn people of the city should govern themselves and choose their executive officers. In other words, we have there the idea of the New England town meeting. It would consume too much time for me to trace in detail the story of Greek and Roman government. The Greek cities were torn with factions, which led to the banishment of one party when the other was in power, to constant lapses into tyranny, and to complete inability to build up a strong, extensive, well-organized state. Even the genius of Alexander failed to create a Greek empire, and when he died, all that he had brought together under a single head fell to pieces. Rome started and went on for many centuries with the government of a city democracy, torn by the bloody strife of classes and varied by relapses into oligarchies and dictatorships. The Romans had, in the highest degree, the genius of government as well as the genius for war. But nevertheless, when their dominions had become almost coextensive with the civilized world, government by the great senatorial families, tempered by the mob of the Roman Forum, went to pieces in corruption and disorder, and the earlier and simpler form of an all-powerful executive supervened. From the breakup of the Middle Ages, which succeeded the fall of the Roman Empire, gradually emerged the kingdoms of modern Europe. In every case but one, those kingdoms developed into autocracies, great or small. That single exception was England, and it is merely reiterating truism to say that what saved England from becoming one of the despotisms which arose and flourished in Europe after the breakdown of the feudal system was her parliament. In that parliament we find, for the first time, on a large scale, the representative principle. England did not have as pure a democracy, in theory or practice, as Greece or Rome, but both Greece and Rome lost their liberties, and England saved and extended hers. The rise of the modern despotisms of Europe after the beginning of the 16th century was marked by the gradual disappearance of those local representative bodies which had existed in the Middle Ages. The city republics of Italy, based on the theory of Roman Athens, fluctuated between anarchy and tyranny until they all fell into the hands of domestic or foreign despots. Holland alone, of all the countries of Europe, preserved the freedom of her cities and her representative system, and it was Holland, a part of the empire of Charles V, which broke the power of Spain and, retaining the principle of representation, became under republican forms a free and powerful state. Wherever you look into the history of the last 400 years, you will find that the rise and the power of the representative body are coincident with liberty, and that the rise of despotism is coincident with the breakdown of whatever representative bodies there may have been. The history of the representative principle in modern times is the history of political freedom, and this representative principle is the great contribution of the English-speaking people and of the period since the Renaissance to the science of government. Without that principle, the democracy of Greece failed to build up a nation coextensive with the spread of Greek settlements and conquests, while that of Rome sank under a complete despotism. The empire of the first Napoleon, and of the third Napoleon as well, were both reared on the ruins of the legislative bodies of France. Examples might be multiplied, but nothing is clearer than that every lasting advance which has been made toward political freedom has been made by and through the representative principle. 
Even today, the struggle in Russia seeks, as its only assurance, the establishment of a representative body. Indeed, the movement for a larger political freedom and for the right of the people to take part in their own government, which has filled Europe for the last century, is penetrating now to countries outside the pale of Western civilization. And the existence of this movement in Persia, in Turkey, and in China is manifested by the efforts in all those countries toward securing representative institutions. In a word, it may be said that the advance toward political liberty and the establishment of the rights of the people to govern have been coincident and gone hand in hand with the progress of the representative principle. It is also to be noted that the independence of the judiciary, the other great bulwark of liberty and of the rights of the individual, has followed everywhere upon the growth and success of the representative principle in government. The destruction of this principle, therefore, would mean reaction and the return to the system of an all-powerful executive. There could be no greater misfortune to free popular government than to weaken or impair the principle of representation, and the quickest way to break that principle down is to deprive the representative bodies of all responsibility and turn them into mere machines of record. You cannot take from your representative bodies all power of action and all responsibility and expect them to survive. If you bind a man's arm to his side and prevent its use and motion, the muscles weaken, the arm withers, and in time becomes atrophied and useless. If you force the legislature to deal with certain measures under a mandate which practically compels them to vote upon these measures in only one way, you take from your representatives all responsibility and all power of action, and the representative principle in your government will atrophy and wither away until it becomes in the body politic like some of those rudimentary organs in the natural body, quite useless and often a mere source of dangerous disease. This public opinion bill does this very thing, for it aims directly at the destruction of representative responsibility, and I think, although it received the support of many excellent people who did not pause to consider it carefully, that it found its origin among those small groups whose avowed purpose is, is to destroy our present institutions and forms of government and replace them with socialism or anarchy. The advocates of the bill continually raised the parrot cry that those who opposed it did not trust the people, and some persons were found who actually seemed to think that instructions from a town or other constituency, which were more common a century ago than they are today, were equivalent to a public opinion bill and that there was some legal obstacle at the present time to such instructions. There is no relation or parallel whatever between instructions of this kind and the scheme proposed by this bill, nor is there anything to prevent instructions by a constituency except the practical one caused by the increase in numbers of the electorate. The use of instructions has died out, although they are still employed occasionally, simply because improved means of communication and the growth of commercial, labor, and trade organizations have made other methods of reaching the same result quicker, easier, and more practicable. But this fact does not impair the rights of a constituency in the least, and any constituency can avail itself of this right if it so desires, for it is one of which no constituency could be deprived except by constitutional amendment. Every constituency, I repeat, has the right now, as always, to issue instructions to its representative if it can agree upon them, just as it has the right of petition. But that is a very different thing from the final determination by ballot of every possible abstract question by a popular vote. It is worthwhile to emphasize this difference, for it throws light upon the whole question. 
the constituency in the first place instructs only its own representatives. It does not undertake to instruct the representatives of other constituencies, but only its own, thereby recognizing the representative character of the member or senator or congressman whom it has chosen. The instructions, moreover, are passed by a meeting where they can be discussed, amended, and modified, and where the arguments of both majority and minority can be heard. The constituency in passing instructions is not confined to a blind categorical yes or no upon a question where neither amendment, discussion, nor modification is possible. They act themselves only with the same safeguards which have been thrown about the passage of laws in the legislature. They are not the helpless instrument of a plebiscite, but free men setting forth their opinions in the manner which the history of free government has consecrated. Instructions from a constituency are the very antithesis of the mandate which it is proposed to extort or cajole from the people by such a scheme as this public opinion bill. As to the cry that those who opposed this bill showed by doing so that they did not trust the people, no more unfounded and misleading argument was ever uttered. Suppose I say to you that I do not think you can read in the dark. Do I thereby imply that your eyes are bad or that I think you are ignorant and illiterate? Because I say that you cannot read in the dark, am I therefore to be accused of exhibiting distrust in your intelligence or your education? What I distrust and assail as a barrier to reading is the darkness. In order to read, you must have light. In order to make wise laws, you must have light to see whither you go and not make wild plunges in the dark. For good laws, you must have good methods of lawmaking. I do not distrust the people who make the laws, but I distrust methods of lawmaking which would force good people to make bad laws. More than 300 of our Massachusetts communities govern themselves in town meeting. They are the purest democracies the world can show. They elect their executive officers by ballot. But all questions as to the policies and government of the town are submitted to the meeting on the warrant and are open to debate, to amendment, to reference to a committee, and to postponement. Do I distrust the people because I say that these questions ought to be submitted in precisely this way, and that this opportunity for debate, amendment, and postponement should be given, and that the voters should not be compelled to vote yes or no upon every question in the warrant without debate or delay? The people of our towns would never assent to such a change, or allow themselves to be deprived of full opportunity for debate, amendment, and postponement. And yet, this is just what the Public Opinion Bill proposes to inflict upon the people of the state at large. Here is another illustration of my meaning, drawn from the very principle which I seek to defend and preserve. I believe profoundly in representative government, but when I say that I am opposed to a single representative chamber, I am not showing distrust in representative government, but in a form of representative government which history and experience have proved to be fertile in evils. Let me, however, take an example, which exhibits my meaning and demonstrates my proposition better than anything else, from our administration of justice, at once the cornerstone and the bulwark of a free and well-ordered state. We determine differences between individuals, and we try men and women for crime by judges and juries. Is it to be argued that because we say that a man shall not be tried for his life by a mass meeting or popular vote, but by a judge and twelve jurymen under the forms and regulations of law, we do not trust the people? Has not experience shown that no man's rights or life would be safe unless there was secured to him, under the strongest guarantees, the right of trial by jury? The lynch law, against which all decent men protest, is often carried out by mass meetings frequently representing the passions and beliefs of an entire community. 
Is it a failure to trust the people because we insist that the legal rights of the people themselves cannot be preserved unless they are determined by a judge and jury? It is exactly the same in regard to legislation. Intelligent laws cannot be passed without consideration, debate, deliberation, and the opportunity for amendment. To answer yes or no on an abstract question is to legislate by ballot without any of the safeguards which representative government throws around the making of laws. Plebiscites of this sort have determined and fixed the power of autocratic emperors, but they have never made the laws of a free people. This public opinion bill is not even a referendum, for the referendum submits to popular approval a perfected measure, and in the case of purely local questions, it is often used by our legislature. What is called the initiative is now covered, for all reasonable purposes, by the right of petition, but this public opinion bill puts both initiative and referendum into one act and provides for the submission to the people, not of perfected law, but of any abstract question which any thousand people choose to suggest in which any 5,000 voters can be found to sign, and upon which the people have no opportunity to do more than vote categorically yes or no. You cannot hesitate, you cannot modify, you cannot amend, you cannot postpone. The pistol is at your head. Throw up your hands and answer yes or no at your peril. There are four questions on the ballot. Only one probably has been discussed, and that insufficiently, for perhaps 30 days. No matter, you must answer yes or no on all four, and the legislature must, in reality, whatever theoretical liberty is supposed to retain, obey the mandate. There is to be no chance for reconsideration, no time for reflection, or for second thought. End of section one. Recording by Colleen McMahon.